Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from these tragic events and potentially prevent them from occurring in the future. I'm Paul, and today I'm joined by my co-host, host, uh, Dirk. Uh, Doug's not available today, but we have a new co-host, and uh, his name is Denny. I'm in with the Ds here, Dirk, Denny, and Doug. But anyway, uh, my is my cousin, my elder cousin, um, the patriarch of the family now, pretty well. Anyway, he's going to join us from Nova Scotia, and he'll do a little bio about himself. Uh, Denny, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate the introduction. Uh, I retired in uh, 2016 after 39 years, uh, some of which as a volunteer firefighter, about 18 and a half years as a career fire chief in three different fire departments. I was also a fire chief in industrial department and a administrator training officer, I guess you would say, in another um, industrial department. So by industrial, I mean petrochemical and nuclear. Um, the other the other departments I was in were municipal uh, departments, everything from uh, bedroom communities to uh, largely rural communities to uh, moderate-sized city combination departments. Now you built a new home down in uh, Nova Scotia in yes, the Halifax region? And... Yep, yep. I've uh, lived here for many years and uh, was living in Ontario for the last uh, 21 years. And so we moved, we moved back. My wife's from uh, down this way. So um, want to get away from the crazy 401 and the QEW. So uh, decided to come back home here where, you know, everybody's not in a hurry to go anywhere. <laughs> Except me. <laughs> Except you, yeah. What are these people doing? Get out of my way. I gotta hey, go I learned home. to drive in Montreal. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, Denny, you brought up a, a point that we should possibly reintroduce ourselves once in a while. You, you listen to a few podcasts midstream and going like, who are these guys? So uh, I thought I'd give Dirk just a brief time to do a brief, brief uh, bio update. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, welcome, Denny. Uh, it's awesome to, to have you. Um, uh, about me, um, in my 32nd year in the uh, emergency services, let's put it that way, um, started as a volunteer in 1990 uh, with a department in Germany. Uh, that's the accent. I'm not sure if everybody knows that. Oh, I didn't, but, uh, didn't yes, notice I, it. I am not born in, or raised in Canada. Um, anyhow, uh, anyhow, I started uh, as a volunteer in 1990. Uh, did that for seven years before I became a career firefighter uh, in Germany. I was stuck with the volunteer department. So I, I finished 12 years with the volunteers and then five years with the careers. And then I came over here, um, a little sabbatical, just you know to get everything because you have to start from scratch in Canada. So I did that and I uh, had a five-year plan. After three years, I got on with the uh, big city in Alberta and been doing this for 17 years. I'm uh, an acting officer right now, acting captain most of the time. Uh, still a little bit of waste from promotion, but uh, we'll get there eventually. Uh, and then uh, overall, I got six years left on my exchange, I always say, <laughs> before I they retire me <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that's about it. So uh, three, three departments, uh, two languages, two continents and uh, still learning. And uh, yeah, that's, that's about me. Awesome. And uh, Paul here, this is sort of my little uh, brainchild podcast that uh, my friends helped me with just to try to get the word out on, on what to do. After 36 years as an active firefighter, the first 25 were part-time and the last uh, 10 were full-time as a, a chief officer on a couple different departments. I think three departments and an ambulance company in, in Western Canada here during my career. I still work part-time doing emergency management and incident command training. And the odd, I get to teach pump training here in a couple of weeks, which is fun. I haven't done that for a while. So for one of the, uh, one of the fire colleges here in the province of Alberta. So yeah, anyway, that's kind of a, a little intro of the people and, uh, we'll move on to this week's incident, which is going to be, uh, Passaic, New Jersey, where, uh, an incident happened in 2001 that we're going to review and, uh, we'll go from there. So, uh, Dirk, do you want to? Started okay, off. Yeah, I don't know. I hope I don't butcher that name. 
Okay, so on uh, May 9th, 2001, a 40-year-old male career firefighter that uh, was the victim died after he became trapped in a third-floor apartment while searching above the uh, floor for occupants. Uh, the firefighter assists and search team, uh, I think they call it FAST, other call it Rick or RIT, made several attempts to locate the victim, but were unsuccessful due to the fire spread and deteriorating conditions of the building. The victim was located in the bedroom of a third floor apartment, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. A little bit about the fire department. Uh, the fire department involved in this incident consists of two stations with a total of 117 uniformed firefighters. The department serves a population of 70,000 in a geographic area of 3.2 square miles. The department required all new firefighters to complete uh, 320 hours of training in basic firefighting with a one-year probationary period. Uh, the victim was NFPA certified as a firefighter level one, level two, with 10 years of firefighting experience with the department. The victim received training in the following areas, apparatus, engine operator, aerial tiller training and testing, uh, hazardous material, fire inspector, apparatus operations, search and rescue, life fire training, and basic life support. The victim was certified as an emergency medical technician. Yeah, I had a, a problem with the script when I brought it over. And everywhere where it wrote F-E or F-I, it put that E with an accent on it. And I could not get it. to. So I edited them all manually, but obviously I missed some. So sorry about that. Anyway. So on my version of this, Paul, the next section is not colored at all. Right. So that's me. Oh, okay. Yep. Clear. Cool. Yeah, just to avoid having too much colors. Yep. Okay, so uh, on May 9th, 2021, as Dirk said, uh, 2037 hours, so 837, Central Dispatch received a call from a civilian reporting a structure fire. The career department was notified at 2037 and the following apparatus responded. Engine one with a lieutenant, a driver, and a firefighter. So it looks like three-person staffing. Engine two, again with three-person staffing. Engine three, truck two only uh also had three person staffing one of which was the tiller operator which is the victim uh deputy chief uh, uh also the engine two was the first to arrive uh, with just a quick two minute response time followed immediately by truck two the engine of uh, the lieutenant of engine two reported to central dispatch they had a working fire in a three-story brick building with fire showing in the rear he requested that all companies make hydrant connections. So just a note on that staffing. So the three-person staffing. Now, 70,000 people in 3.2 square miles is definitely what NFPA would consider dense population and would require probably five or six-person staffing to be compliant with 1710. Yes, I was reading in the uh, state report. Uh, or, I'm sorry. I was reading in the New Jersey uh, report on fires in uh, 2001 to 2002 that that uh, Passaic is the third most densely populated urban area in the U.S. Wow. Like so Baltimore. <laughs> highly dense. Right, right. And so, highly mixed heritage. So uh, so tough that they only had three-person staffing on, on engines. It's, it's a recipe for disaster, as we've, we found out in many common factors that we talked about last, uh, last week. So, uh, the driver of Engine 2 parked the apparatus to the north of the incident site on the Alpha side of the building. Truck 2 parked directly behind the engine. The lieutenant of the engine then pulled a 200-foot, inch-and-three-quarter pre-connect Minuteman pack from the passenger side of the apparatus. As the lieutenant of Engine 2 stepped back of the apparatus, he fell and twisted his ankle, dropped the Minuteman pack, and then picked up the pile of hose and proceeded to the street-level door on the Alpha side of the occupancy. The so fire this, fire... this door, Paul, is a is a raised door. It's like half a story like, up. Yeah, half, okay. So yeah, it's not a straight walk in. There's several steps up and then it goes in. Okay, good to point out. Thank you. Uh, the firefighter and engine two proceeded toward the corner hydrant to the north, 160 feet of the engine with 400 feet of four-inch supply line and engine three arrived at the scene. At 2040, the deputy chief uh, arrived at the scene and assumed incident command. He conducted his initial size up. Police officer approached him and reported civilians were, civilians were trapped on the second floor in apartment number seven. 
the IC informed command, Captain of Truck 2 that the trapped civilians, of the trapped civilians, firefighter number one and the civil victim were standing near Truck 2 when they heard civilians yelling that there were people in apartment 7. They proceeded to the building to conduct a primary search. The lieutenant from Engine 3 made forceful entry to the street-level door on the Alpha side. The lieutenant from Engine 2 then followed the lieutenant from Engine 3 into the first floor of the building with the pre-connect from Engine 2. Just uh, noted that during the NIOSH investigator that firefighters and fire officers reported that their conditions on the first floor when they first entered the building were clear. So this is a long hallway that goes from the entry door all the way to the back of the building. Um, so they were clear with little heat and uh, no smoke and that the conditions encountered on the second floor uh, were light smoke with some heat. The stairwell to the second floor is about halfway down that hallway. Okay. Yep. Center stairwell kind of thing. The, uh, at 2041 hours, Engine 1 arrived and was ordered by command to stand by. The IC then called Central Dispatch and requested another engine. The lieutenant from Engine 3 proceeded up the stairwell to the second floor and to the rear Charlie side of the building, followed by the lieutenant from Engine 3. The lieutenant from Engine 2 entered the building and dropped the Minuteman pack in the stairwell. He proceeded with the nozzle to the second floor landing and down the hallway to the Charlie side, where he met the first lieutenant from Engine 3. 2042 engine four driver operator and lieutenant a firefighter responded to the scene the lieutenant from engine three forced the door to apartment number eight and encountered heavy fire and smoke the uh during also during the investigation um they reported that there were no civilians were seen or found inside the building at all during all the fire operations huh the captain from truck two followed the hose into the building, unthinking, unkinking the hose as he proceeded to the second floor to join the two lieutenants in apartment eight. Incident command radioed the lieutenant from engine three to ascertain that they had made entry into the apartment. Replying in the affirmative, the lieutenant then radioed the pump operator of engine two to charge the line. He began hitting the fire in the rear of the apartment, but was having problems with low water pressure on the line. At 2043, the pump operator rated the lieutenant of engine two that he was having trouble with the throttle at the pump panel. So this throttle problem obviously created a low pressure um, situation uh, in the hose line and may have you know, contributed to the kinks in the charging the line in the stairwell. Do they even ever address it? I don't remember. I mean, sometimes I've had it where I've had to go step on the on the gas pedal in the cab to get throttle because the interlock or something didn't work, and you can't no no throttle at the pump panel because it doesn't know it's in pump. Yeah, I've done that too. Pretty hard to keep a constant pressure. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. But I've had to do it. The time I had to do it once was because the truck came in really hot and was heavy on the brakes, and the low pressure was air pressure was so low that when they pulled the parking brake, the switch didn't flick over to throttle uh, on the pump panel. Right. The victim, who was carrying a sledgehammer and firefighter number one carrying a flathead axe, were conducting a primary search of three second floor apartments, number five, six, and seven, while the two lieutenants from engine two and three and the captain from truck two were attacking the fire in that fourth apartment, number eight. No civilians were found on the second floor. 2044, the interior attack team called for more water pressure. Engine 2 pump operator replied he's still having troubles with the throttle. Engine 4 arrived and command ordered them in for additional manpower. The victim and firefighter 1 ascended the stairwell uh, towards the third floor where they encountered heavy fire and high, heavy smoke and high heat. The victim and firefighter 1 descended the stairwell back to the second floor landing. Firefighter 1 told the victim to stay on the hose line and to help the lieutenants in apartment 8, which is on the second floor. He went out to get some box lights, flashlights from the truck. Uh, reportedly, the purpose of the, these box lights was uh, the intention to place them at the top of the stairwell, which would have been halfway down the third floor hallway, and to use them as a beacon for exiting. Which I like that beacon idea. Not many departments do it. I know Saskatoon back in the 80s had made little boxes with a siren and a light on it. Yep. And they could put them at the entranceway as a way to find your way out. Yeah, You could even commercially buy those at one point. Right, yeah. We use these um, these traffic pucks, those, these LED pucks. Oh, sure. And Good we, idea. Little, uh, little uh, uh, piece of rope on there, mm -hmm. loop, so you can actually hang it on, on the ladder. For example, when you uh, lie a window, so you can see that. 
yeah. and we can bring them in. And, and, and they're sometimes them. used in combination with a tie-off, for instance, for a search line. You, you tie off your search line and you leave your beacon right there. Yeah, go, this came up in a few other calls as recommendations for some sort of a indicator. So that was a good a good move that they that they did yeah. there. Good idea. Yep. Twenty forty five firefighters stretched an inch and three quarter backup line. Good backup line from the same engine. Engine two. Um, at twenty forty six, members of mutual aid began responding to the incident. At twenty forty seven, the commander called central dispatch and requested another truck. This responded with a lieutenant, a driver, and a firefighter. The victim radioed engine two that he was then trapped on the third floor. So that escalated quickly. Uh, apparently, based on the uh, the records, the the recordings of the of the call itself, there was still a, uh, even after this indication that he was trapped, there was approximately seventy seconds. So more than a minute of the radio traffic um, was tied up with conversation between the IC and the truck one officer. Who were discussing assignment and placement for Truck One upon their arrival. Wow. Uh, so the IC and the Truck One officer, um, who who uh, were discussing the placement of that vehicle, um, they never actually discussed the firefighter who was who was uh, radioing that he was in trouble. So uh, there was there, all the conversation was being carried on on the one radio channel, and that was right. both the tactical and their command channel together at the yeah. same time. Right. So a few minutes later, uh, at 2049, the victim radio truck two specifically reporting, I cannot breathe and I'm trapped on the third floor. The victim made it a third transmission that he was on the third floor trapped and needed help. The lieutenant from engine three actually overheard the radio transmission and called Mayday Mayday over the radio. The victim made a th fourth transmission that he was on the third floor trapped and needed help. Central dispatch transmitted, we have a Mayday Mayday. Dispatch to Deputy 4, uh, advising Deputy 4, we have a mayday calling from the third floor. Command acknowledge central dispatch notification of the mayday. Trying to determine the victim's location, the lieutenant from Engine 3 maintained radio contact. The victim responded that he was on the third floor upstairs and to the right. A minute later, the victim radioed that there was heavy fire and he couldn't get out. Approximately another minute later, he radioed that he was running out of air. The lieutenant made numerous calls for a line to be brought up to the third floor. 2052, truck one arrived, that's who the IC was talking with, where to be, uh, parked in the Delta side of the fire building. 13 minutes after the victim had arrived on scene, at 2053, he made his final transmission that he was out of air. At 2054, the incident commander radioed for the mutual aid company to report in as a firefighter search and assist team or a RIT team. Lieutenant from Engine 3 told Firefighter 1, who had just returned to the second floor landing, that a victim had radioed that he was trapped in the third floor rear apartment. The Lieutenant from Engine 2 uh, attempted to stretch the initial line up the stairway to the third floor, but found that the line was too short and would not reach the, re reach the rear apartments. So the, these lines were, were uh, 200 foot lines. They don't tell us whether they're using pre-connects or, or, or lines that they had connected. It sounds like a pre-connected line. Right. And, but you talked that line about a Minuteman. You talked about a Minuteman, which would yeah, be Yeah, so that sounds like a pre-connected load probably over the mm -hmm. pump house. But yeah. so that line at that time was fully charged, at least. And and uh, although um, the, with the throttle problems and so forth, it was kinked in the stairwell between the first and second floors. So that's you go in the hallway, turn right up the stairs, and there's a landing, and then you go up and you're on the second floor. So it was somewhere in there, there was some kinks in the line that were um, interfering with their advancing the line. And the low pressure would add to the kinking problem potentially. Yeah, you lose quite a bit. You get several kinks, you can lose significant amount of pressure, yes. What you oh, lose is flow, not pressure. You lose flow, and, and, but the low pressure allows the hose to kink easier as well. Yes, and, and you know the type of hose you're using, You know one of the things you need to do when you buy hose is check how it performs in kinks. Yeah, yeah. Firefighter 1 followed the lieutenant from Engine 2 to the third floor. However, they were forced to exit the building because he was low on air. The lieutenant from Engine 3 advanced the hose line down the hall towards Apartment 6, where he received an electric shock while attempting to knock down the fire. So the department's SOPs at that time listed uh, shutting off of utilities. So that would be shutting off the gas, shutting off the electricity, probably not shutting off the municipal water supply. Right. Because um, that's usually done at the street. 
but at least gas and, and electricity shut off. That was a truck company function. And they would have had to go probably in the basement to turn off the power. In an old building like this, maybe, very likely. Maybe. Which yeah. meant going in and then finding the door down. Uh, truck 2 immediately was assigned to conduct a search for trapped civilians. Two firefighters assisted the lieutenant from engine 3 out of the building, and emergency medical technicians provided him with medical attention. Firefighter 1 got a ladder off truck 2, proceeded to the Delta side of the building. He positioned the ladder beneath the window of the third-story apartment where he believed the victim was located. Firefighter 1 broke the window, which was located in the kitchen of apartment 12. He was unable to gain entry because the refrigerator blocked the window. 2055 hours, radio transmission was sent out asking the victim if he was still on the radio. The victim did not reply. The uh, This is sort of that uh, whole BC thing with... Uh, you can't put more than one crew in the building or have a 10-minute elapsed time without having RIT on, on activated. And also RIT is supposed to ladder. BC, they train them all to, as soon as you put someone on a floor above the main floor, it has to be laddered to provide an alternate egress. Uh, this is only they, 20 minutes into the call, too. Yeah. They teach, they teach that uh, religiously in British Columbia in their officer training, the laddering the second floor. The RIT team usually does it. Third floor in this case. Third floor in this case, yeah. The administrative director of the department arrived at this time to provide logistical support. 2100 hours, the chief of the department arrived and assumed command from the incident commander. Mutual aid also arrived. Incident command radioed central dispatch, requesting another engine and truck company for more manpower. 2102 hours, the firefighter on the bucket of truck run radioed heavy fire coming through the roof and the third floor at the rear. At 2103, engine two, which was additional mutual aid, arrived. 2104, the uh, IC radioed central dispatch for an additional ambulance. Two minutes later, the firefighter in the bucket of ladder truck one radioed IC that the rear of the third floor was fully involved. The lieutenant from engine two radioed from the interior that the rear of the second floor was also fully involved. Another minute later, firefighter in bucket of truck one radioed IC to get the firefighter out of the building because the whole rear of the roof is lit up. Three minutes later, the firefighters in the bucket reported to command that the roof had partly, partially collapsed now into the third floor. Another, two, another minute later, uh, command radioed the truck the status of the roof. Firefighter replied, the rear of the building has collapsed and the front is lighting up. Incident command then ordered an evacuation of the building and personnel accountability report from all units. Truck one and engine two knocked down the fire with master streams, which allowed firefighters to assist uh, search teams, uh, several attempts to get upstairs to search for the victim. Um, although mutual aid company had been called with one of the reasons being to set up a fast team or RIT team, the fast team that was actually operating that day uh, consisted of on-duty personnel from Passaic and uh, we're not the mutual aid company that was uh, responding or had arrived at the scene. I'm not sure just exactly what their status was at that time. Um, it, and that's one of the things that's, that's always an issue, right? You want to rescue your own. Right, um, for sure. Yeah, while the FAST was operating in the interior of the building, the uh, administrative director, who's, who's the chief, but was not the IC, um, he ordered truck one, which was located, I think, on the AD corner, um, to, to hit the fire on the roof with an aerial appliance, in other words, with the ladder pipe. Um, the firefighters uh, told the NIOSH investigators that during one of their search attempts uh, on the third floor hallway, I guess, uh, water applied to the roof by the aerial appliance actually forced them to retreat because of deteriorating conditions in the, uh, on the third floor. Not only are you hitting him with the water, but also the, the, the flow path and everything is changing while that's happening, right? Yeah, you know, the fire's trying to get out the roof, right? And you shut that off, so it's going to look for a different flow path. Exactly. And, uh, the obvious one is down the hall and down the stairs and out the open doors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or the, and the broken yeah, windows. Where there happens to be a lot of guys in fire outfits. Exactly. Don't, uh, not a, you know, as soon as the air, what is it, aerials go up, walls come down? Something like that? Firefighters come out. Yep. With uh, each attempt by the FAST team to locate the victim, the fire spread and conditions it deteriorated in the building. 
Command called for additional evacuations. On the fourth attempt by the FAST team to find the victim, a captain was using a thermal imaging camera when a member of the team heard a pass device coming from apartment number 12. So apartment number 12 would be the CD corner. Right. The uh, FAST team entered apartment 12 and discovered the refrigerator door open in in front of the door to the bedroom where the victim was found. The victim was lying face down on his pass device, which was activated but barely audible. This is before NFPA changed the pass device requirements to be audible in any position that you could be. It used to be on your chest, and if you were face down, you wouldn't hear it. The victim was unfortunately not responsive and not breathing. So it's, it's interesting. They found afterwards that there was a wall-mounted mirror in the bedroom where the victim was found and that it had been most likely broken by the victim. The victim had struck the mirror and the wall numerous times with a sledgehammer, which was which he carried as an entry device tool. Uh, the mirror may have appeared to the victim who entered this uh, quite small bedroom, actually. Um, it might have appeared as a window to him um, at the time. Uh, paramon- paramedics were requested after the fire was out, obviously, to respond to the third floor where they did pronounce the victim as deceased. So was that that, uh, that window where the firefighter threw a ladder and couldn't gain entry because there was a fridge blocking that? Was that the same fridge? So, no, this, this uh, from what I understand from the drawings is, is there was actually a window in the bedroom where the victim was found but there was a window mount air conditioner. Okay. Because they mentioned a, a, a fridge with a door open. That, so yeah, that was in the kitchen. There was a door. Yeah. yeah. There's two windows in the kitchen and one in this small bedroom. And uh, looking at street views of the building, uh, some of those windows are, are have been bricked up. And so whether they were, it was actually available as a point of access at the time, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just looking at the map here. So the victim was then removed from the building at approximately 2,300 hours. Recommendations and discussion. Recommendation number one, fire department should ensure the fire department's standard operating procedures regarding structure fires are followed unless otherwise directed by the incident commander. Yeah, so we, we have a discussion here about this. And then the, the department's SOP for structure fire state that where a large body of fire exists, a two and a half inch shall be the initial attack line unless otherwise directed by the incident commander. The SOPs also state that the second due engine shall provide a second attack line of equal capacity or larger to the initial attack line, which is pretty much standard NFPA. Right. Yeah, too, too big a fire for an uh, inch and three quarter. I think another aspect of this, uh, Paul, and I, I don't see you have it highlighted here, is is that expecting to pull a two and a half, excuse me, a, an inch and a half, 200 foot pre-connect to the seaside of a three-story building, it's far too long a stretch. You need you need probably 100 feet per floor, so you're 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 very much short, uh, particularly with scissors, not necessarily scissors stairs, but but with stairs with landings and corners, and and you're not going you're not going to advance a charge line like that. You've you've got to lay it as you go, pretty much. Yeah, unless they do the, the uh, stairwell stretch, but these stairwells probably aren't con- congruent. They yeah, might not. Yeah, be. they might not even be open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might not be it, a well. I, yeah. I I think it says it was an open stairwell, so it may have been possible to to hang the hose down the center, you know, and take some shortcuts that way, but with limited staffing and a charge line. Um, that's probably why they took the inch and three quarter in in the first place, just for the maneuverability with limited staffing. I mean, you know, three guys on a truck, one guy's operating, that's only two guys to advance the line. Yeah. And then recommending a two and a half, it's funny when you only run three guys on an engine, because they, they will never stretch that line. Yeah. As soon as, I mean, they stretch it, but you can't move it. Once it's charged, you're not going anywhere. But but this is where your SOP comes in, you know, your first, your first two engines in, they pair up as one team. I mean, you have to do that when you're short step. And now, and now you're operating with a f- five firefighters operationally and one operator on the truck. So you got five guys, you can advance it two and a half. Yeah, then you could do it. Yeah. Yeah. And your so next the, punch in, they pair up also. 
they so they talked about that you know exactly they had a working fire heavy smoke from the rear they encountered heavy fire upon their initial to the rear apartment and the second floor and of course the instant three-quarter were utilized from the first two engine but they were probably too small not and and low pressure too they said so you got a yeah. double whammy there yeah. in my opinion from a fire truck salesman point of view they should have came from a different truck yeah yeah but the interesting thing about this is, is is if you look at this particular street there were four buildings virtually identical on this street and this is just one street so this building configuration, if you will, could not have been a stranger to these guys. They must have seen many of them in the city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, good point. The recommendation number two was fire department should ensure adequate control forces are on scene and available for deployment for fire control activities, of course, which we've already kind of talked about. Is there just not yeah. enough people here? So yeah, the initial response by the department includes a total of 13 personnel on three engines, one ladder truck and one command vehicle. NFPA states that fewer than 11 firefighters would be most hard pressed to accomplish safe, effective initial interior fire attack in a timely manner at a detached single family dwelling, low hazard occupancy, not including an incident commander. So they were short staff right from the get go. Yeah, I think studies show you need 17. Yeah. 17 is the number from out of NIOSH. And uh, certainly when I was in Ontario, we, we had this grid where you, you assign all the tasks that you want to accomplish and you count the people that are involved and they're, 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 they're lower effective, medium effective and high effective, you know, on crew size and whether you've got low, medium or high risk. And this is an apartment building. You've got four, four apartments per floor times three floors. There's a dozen apartments. It's an older building. Uh, there's 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 only one set of stairs in and out. You know, there's no fire escapes as far as I'm aware. Uh, so everything is happening on the ones, and, and this is going to be a medium to high uh, risk building. And you need to probably have in the 20s or the 30s on on. Yeah, scene. we usually send you know, 24 24 firefighters to these high occupancy buildings. Yeah. Well, we we discovered here that there was only ever the one ladder thrown to one window on the third floor. And think about that. What size ladder was that? It, it, mm -hmm. I, would a 28 footer get you to the sill of a third floor window? Maybe uh, just. 24 should reach it depending on, on the first floor. But yeah, 24 should, should reach the window sill of a third. Yeah. So one guy threw that ladder by himself. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's, and that's, that's good. A, that's, but... and, and if you look at, there was a narrow alleyway there to do that in. So, you know, like where, what were the rest of the guys doing, not contributing to that, not laddering the building? They were uh, focused in on being the fast team. Yeah, because so, to, if you had enough people, this ladder, this building should have been laddered on all four sides, just about. And the reason for laddering is, number one, you believe there were people trapped. So uh, you would want to maybe consider a vent enter search type thing if you knew where they were. You knew they were in apartment seven. Um, uh, looking at first floor apartment would have given you an idea of what window did what. You could have gone to the apartment underneath that, uh, but seven was on the opposite side of the building and you couldn't ladder that. There's only like a six foot alley down through there. Mm. Um, so, you know, they had some definite challenges on this building, uh, but even where they had availability, they didn't do some of the things that you would expect to be done nowadays. Recommend number nation number three, uh, fire department should ensure team continuity is maintained with the two or three firefighters per team. Yeah, so each firefighter must be assigned uh, to two or more and uh, be given specific assignments to help reduce the chance of injuries. So uh, team continuity relies on some very important key factors, knowing who is on your team and the team leader, staying within visual contact at all times, if visibility is obscure, then team should remain within touch or voice distance to each other, communicating your needs and observations to the team leader, rotating to rehab and staging as a team and uh, watching your team members practice a strong body care uh, body care approach the department's standard operating procedure states that firefighters should always work in pairs and keep in constant contact remembering that each is responsible for the other 
you, and I, I assume just from the way they deployed and integrated working with each other from different engines is they're very used to, because of the short staffing, to group up and say, you know, lieutenant from engine three and lieutenant from engine one or whatever, and they mix together and do stuff. So they're used to doing that. Not that it's a good thing because that continuity isn't there for command. It makes accountability really hard. I mean, at that point, there's only 11 firefighters there. It's a small department. Everybody knows everybody. But but that was a problem. It became a problem. So obviously that didn't work. And uh, we had this in, in previous line of duty deaths where, where just different uh, uh, staffing was, was cross-assigned. And then you had engine three firefighter with uh, ladder two crew. And then if somebody goes missing, that, that's hard for, on the accountability. There was also no accountability officer mentioned. So, yeah, one one of uh, departments I was the chief at the career staff was very much similar size, similar size city to Passaic, and uh, that was typically what they would have on hand anywhere from eight to twelve firefighters, career firefighters. The difference was, of course, is we'd have thirty volunteers arriving, so you you had the people to throw ladders, you had the people to put a RIT team together, and so forth. But these guys, they depended on mutual aid to make that happen. And uh, although the mutual aid departments are pretty close, there's, there's still a time um, factor there. And I think in this case, they were 20 minutes in before they called the mutual aid. So there's, there's a further delay right there. That whole, we want to do it on our own thing. And, you know, maybe didn't think it was going to be as tough as that. that we, and we, how many fires have we evaluated where, you know, they underestimated the, the size of the problem, right? Due to, due to lack of accurate size up. Well, there was no really... mention of a 360 uh, no, in the Number four, they talk about ensure firefighters know uh, their uh, notify their officer when they go above the fire. You know, and clearly it looks like this person was told to go wait on the landing, help with the hose, and for some reason went upstairs. Yeah, so uh, even if the firefighter's assignment has been pre-planned, the firefighter officer should be informed by portable radio or face-to-face -face communication that they are going above the fire. That obviously didn't happen. Yeah, what what we don't know, of course, is what what inspired him to go above. I mean, there were there were a number of officers inside the building at that time. Did did one of them instruct him to go up there? Because the guy who told him to stay there was a peer, wasn't an officer, and he was a t he was uh, one of them was a tiller and the other guy was a chauffeur. So the, the guy who lost his life was a chauffeur, I believe. And the guy who told him to stay was the tiller operator. Other way around, I think. Yeah, whichever but it was. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so, you know, was there another officer that provided direction? You know, stick your nose up on the third floor and see what's going on there. You know, because the, the, this fire was in an apartment. Started, it appeared to have started on a second floor apartment and burned up through to the third floor, which is where the, the, uh, the uh, firefighter lost his life. He got trapped in the apartment directly above the fire. Uh, which then became part of the fire. Uh, so we don't necessarily know everything that went on in that hallway that caused him to go up above the fire. But the fact is he did go by himself. As the NIOSH report says, right, all firefighters searching above a fire should understand the firefighter priorities of taking risks. Vincent Dunn back in 1992 said, uh, firefighters should not risk his life on the report of a missing person or even the high probability of a person trapped above the fire. If there's fire there and you don't have a means of containing it, you don't have a hose line, then, you know, that's a, a lot of risk there to go and do. And, and we, unfortunately... We could, we could talk about that if it's a team of firefighters like a ladder truck they do searches without hose lines right absolutely but it's it's a it's a situational dependent and it should be never just one guy that just goes all over there and checks it out right um, but i think in general you cannot generalize that statement from vince dunn and then fdmys always send um ladder trucks in without hose lines for searches but again it's big teams, right? And they, they do this all the time. But as, so, as, uh, as you discussed in the tailboard talk on common factors, some, some, something like 40% of, of the LODDs are related to truck company operations. And, uh, you know, the common factors there is, is you're searching above a fire often and without a line. So, um, you know, risky. Like you said, Dirk, you know, you got to know what you're doing and you got to be quick. 
Yeah, it's a risk versus reward. That's what we get paid for to take that risk if there's a civilian there, but we want to do it safely. So you have to train for it and you have to have healthy staffing. If you don't have to have that, that's up to the chiefs to go to the politicians and say, listen, we would come for you if we would have more staffing. Right. The issue here, of course, was is that the reported trapped children, a pair of them were in apartment seven reported to be, and this guy was searching apartment 12 on a, on a separate floor. So there was nothing in the report that said there was a reported person there. Yeah, somehow he didn't get the communication or there was miscommunication or something that uh, that, that happened there. Or he maybe disoriented and went up another set of stairs. He just got up and come back down and maybe, you know, disoriented and went the wrong way in, in heavy smoke. Yeah, and the reports of missing people in a structure like this should have been automatic mutual aid right there. Yes. Right, right from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah, to get those resources that we all depend on so much, yeah. right? But again, uh, we don't know how many of these building fires they've been to over the years and everything went tickety-boo. The next one just talks about, you know, again, having if you're operating on a floor above the fire, you should have a charged hose line. Uh, you know, uh, their SOPs for this department state, when operating on the floor above the fire, a charged hose line must be ready. Hose lines can also be used as lifelines in addition to supplying uh, firefighting capabilities. So Again, it depends on the structure. If I'm in a non-combustible building and FDNY does this all the time, they go above without a hose line because they know what they're doing. But if this is a uh, lightweight construction building, um, yeah, yeah, don't. Just you know, bring a hose line. But but this firefighter, when you look at the uh, the floor plan for this, he went up the stairs, he made a right turn down the hallway, he made a right turn into the apartment, and he made a right turn into the bedroom. That's as far as he got. So from his perspective, it was probably pretty simple what he'd done and could have undone it. But probably what happened was the fire burned through the yeah. floor. And then you get those 30-minute bottles, two right, turns. right? They're on scene for 20 minutes, I think, 15, 20 minutes. Good old air, air management. 20 minutes in when he starts radio. They talk, the next recommendations mentions about uh, activating their pass device after radioing their mayday, which he didn't actually radio mayday. He radioed, he just didn't maybe use the word according to what they're saying here. Uh, when the firefighter becomes lost or disoriented, a few simple steps can facilitate a quick rescue and reduce the chance of injury. The first step is the radio transmission of the media situation, followed by the firefighters providing the FAST or RIT team and the IC with clues as uh, to which his last known location. Um, the firefighter's second step involves manually activating the pass device. The final step requires the firefighter to remain calm, conserving air, staying in radio contact with command and the FAST team, and to survey their surroundings in an attempt to gain a bearing of direction or potential escape routes. Also, firefighter survival, you want to try to get to make your way out. And I think he tried that by you know, smashing holes in, in, the, in, the, in the wall and stuff like that. Um, it's training, again. Mayday training is super important. Uh, firefighter survival is super important. If you can get yourself out of a situation like that, the, you don't even have to deploy a fast team if you can get out by yourself, right? But technology is part of the answer too. Uh, at that time, you know, pass alarms were generally clip-ons and you usually clip them on one of, the, one of your shoulder straps, you know, because you could see it get to it easily, right? And if you're face down, uh, it definitely, there was a problem with it. They went to the point where they started to make a large cover on the pass device so that the sound could escape. It was never as good as the integrated ones. And Paul, I believe the regulation for that came later, right? About 11 or 13 where SCBAs, the same time as the mask change for the hardness or the thermal resistance. And they put the BA, uh, the pass alarm on the back plate and it had to be audible in any position, and it was also louder to because of some of these maydays that happened where the passes were activated and they didn't hear them. Right. But even in 1999, I was installing radio systems right. for our fire department that had man down alarms on them, red buttons on them, and you could push them and 
it would transmit a mayday tone and dispatch and everybody on the fire ground would hear it. Uh, you could program it so it held the mic open. So even if you were lying on your radio, you could still talk. You know, technology is also an important thing too. That like, I know in 99, I was installing uh, fire ground radio systems that had uh, emergency man down buttons on the radio it, itself. And, and when you push that, it would, it would uh, you know, broadcast a tone, a man down tone and would hold the microphone open. So the firefighter, even if he was incapacitated physically, uh, could still talk on the microphone to help explain where he was and what the issues was. So the technology was there. It wasn't, it wasn't that old when this incident happened in 2001. Um, but even today, I know there are some fire departments that do not use that capability, even though it's there. And uh, even at that time, we had, we had digital IDs, so it would actually tell you which radio it was. And if you have a good accountability system, you tag the firefighter with the radio, so you now know who that is. And when it's a career department, that shouldn't be an issue. They should all be together on the cab, right? The crew for, accountability. Uh, for 10 years now. It goes along uh, with the truck, right? With yeah, the, and you know. for at least 10 or more years so that now, all, that technology all SCBAs have a uh, feature that will the will transmit a Mayday via radio to a uh, control unit somewhere. If you, you know, an iPad or whatever in a command vehicle that firefighter number or SCBA number 15 has a Mayday or has a thermal alarm if it gets too hot or a low pressure. Uh, but many departments don't use them. And uh, it's just, it's unfortunately, technology's there uh, to help with this stuff. But it's not, it can't happen to us, right? Yeah. 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 Well, the problem, the, the issue with the Scott, or Scott packs, the SCBA, for instance, is the cost, right? Seven, eight thousand, ten thousand dollar packs yeah. for the radio. It comes with the radio. It's part of the cost of the radio. So. That's the tough part. The simple yeah. thing. And the, then, of course, you got to train your folks on how to use it. You know, don't fumble well, with your finger. Hey, I wonder if Not only that, that but dispatch or the incident commander has to have a screen training. open that shows them Radio 25 just transmitted a, a problem, right? Yeah. With dispatch, usually. Procedures, training, practice. Uh, they say that the investigators were unable to determine if the firefighter activated the Mayday uh, on their own or not. Um, Recommendation seven was ensure incident commanders size up the stretch of the first attacking hose line. So, you know, they, they didn't, they did they, they went with too short a hose line. We've already talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most important size of criteria is to access, uh, assess the stretch of the fire attack hose line. Kings or bends in the hose line, centrifugal pump failure or a hose bursting from overpressure can significantly hamper the uh, firefighter operations. Um, I don't agree with the incident commander should make the uh, initial stretch estimation. That should be the, the officer and the firefighter uh, together looking at the building, but that also requires at least a 180. Like get, your, get your Alpha Bravo or Alpha Delta quick look. You know, if you can't make it to the Charlie side, that's one thing, but at least you can gauge the... Uh, 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 the length of the building and the width of the building. And there's, there's awesome host calculations guys put on awesome classes to, to calculate that, but it's basically, well, one length per floor, one length of the front door. Right. And then look at, at, at the span of the building and then you add it all up. And then usually four lengths, it's not going to cut it in a, in a, a center hallway <laughs> walk up. So, But that's, that's easier to do if you have a lot of similar buildings. You're familiar with that building type. You're familiar with the layout. As I mentioned already, there were four similar buildings on this street alone, this block, excuse me. And so if you're familiar with these buildings and you're not stretching hose line in occasionally just yeah. to see what you actually need, then you need to start thinking about doing that as part of pre-planning. I mean, maybe your 200-foot minute man load works well for a two-story, but... Yeah. Yeah, we, we actually used to have hose loads where three lengths, four lengths, five lengths. And that was a single a single uh, family residence, one, one story. Then that was the three lengths. And then the, the four lengths were for your uh, two-story single family residence. And the five usually gets you into those two, three-story walk-ups, right? And then after that, you have to basically improvise that overcome with a leader line and the gated Y and then all these things, right? But again, as you said, you have to know the building construction in your neighborhood and what is the most likely stretch you're gonna gonna do. 
Right. So, but in this situation, you effectively had a three and a half story because the basement was half in the ground only. So you were stepping up. So when you look at that, you could have had a load on the back that was two or three lengths of two and a half, and then a reducer and three or four lengths of inch and three quarter, which was a nod towards your light crewing, the ability to have maneuverable end because you knew the fire was at the back of the building second floor and possibly going to extend to the third floor. So you had that ability. You, you could have gated it off. You could have brought it into the second floor landing and gated it off from there, you know, or wide it off rather. So there's, there's pre-planning, I think would have helped them a bit on this one. Yeah. When they, when they searched the backup line or the, was the third line that came off the same engine they had uh, water supply problems with that, that kind of like, there's enough engines there. There's drivers there. Yeah, you you could have stretched it from any other rig. Um, but pump to the first engine, yeah, and then take or at over. Least take another engine and pump to the first engine. Just pump through it. Just pump through it. Right. You don't need to stretch two hundred feet more to get to the next engine. Just pump through the first engine. But if you don't practice it. Then's not the time to be yeah, learning. The next recommendation, they talked about having that faster RIT team established and in position. And it looks like they didn't do that until after that first evac, actually. Um, so, Yeah, so the, the discussion here would be the fast team or RIT team uh, should respond to every major fire. The team should report to the officer in command and should remain at an area designated by the IC until an intervention is required to a rescue. To rescue a firefighter. Firefighters on scene were designated as fast after the initial evacuation. Um, I personally think I believe in active writ because um, nobody wants to be on writ because it's just, oh yeah, we're just standing around. But as Paul said, like throw ladders. Don't exhaust yourself, but uh, your writ officer should be doing 360s, right? If, if the uh, first arrival officer didn't do it, if the incident commander couldn't do it, the writ officer should be doing it and monitoring it and keeping track. They, he should be also the, in a sense, the accountability officer. He should know where everybody is, right? Every working fire, yeah, absolutely. And frankly, I think it's every working fire because I, I think you get, to the, you get to the point where what's major and what isn't. You get there, it doesn't look major. And you see, that's where you get caught. Uh, they, they, it, it's not a role that that unit has before they get there. It's once they get, it's just a role like fire attack, like search and rescue, like uh, trauma, whatever rehab. It's a role that you're assigned. Okay, engine three, you're my writ. Okay, now focus on it. Do the writ duties, and then it may get reassigned. You know, or you're, but that's what they didn't do here. Yep, exactly. Three deep, right? Three deep. The attackers, the on deck, and another one. I mean, you got an on-deck crew, too, usually. They're there in case there's an emergency. Right. So the perfectly managed fire, half the people don't do anything. That's why I see that's incident command system. In case. Yes. Chief Murphy's in charge. Something will go wrong. Yeah. Next recommendation. And sir, uh, incident command is clearly identified as the only individual responsible for the overall coordination of all activities at the incident. This is where they got into other commanders. So in this particular incident, uh, an established I, they established IC, but some of the fire ground operations were directed by the director of the department and were not coordinated with those of the IC. An effective fire ground operation revolves around one incident commander. There is no command, or if there's a multiple commands, fire ground operations can quickly break down. And we had this before, like I don't know enough guys, or too many, right? Yeah, a lot of incident commanders are hesitant with sectoring off, giving other command rank personnel a job. And that is a critical task in that, okay, I'm IC, you guys are attacking the fire, you guys are backing them up, you guys are writ. Okay, hi, Chief Jones, I want you to be my alpha sector. Or I want you to be my Delta sector. Whatever it happens to be. I know we're, oh, incident command. I'm an ICS instructor. I can't use the word sector. So division or group uh, would be the appropriate term. Uh, but anyway, just uh, teasing there. But you need to subdivide your commands so you don't end up like in 
many instances where you've got 12 units reporting to one incident commander and of course you have and then a mayday comes along and you miss it right and the opposite side of that of course is is you have officers some of who are command officers who have no assigned task they can see things that they believe need doing because they're not seeing the whole scene and they may step in and give orders and and sometimes that's not helpful exactly go get coffee Go get coffee and donuts. <laughs> coffee and donuts. Donuts are for cops. No, help with your span of control. Pizza, that's right. Pizza for firefighters. A nutritious meal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pizza for God's sake. <laughs> Comes in a box? What's wrong with that? <laughs> firefighters should establish and enforce standard operating procedures on the use of thermal imaging cameras for search and rescue operations. Yeah, of course, at the time of the incident, the department did not have any SOPs regarding the use or application of thermal imaging cameras for search and rescue operations. Thermal imaging cameras were assigned to and present on truck one, truck two, engine two, and engine four. Thermal imaging cameras were not utilized during the primary search of the initial search for the victim. I find it very surprising that they already had them because in 2001, it was not on every rig, so that's actually pretty good, but obviously they missed to train people on it and made them aware of the usefulness of a thermal imaging camera. So. Yeah, I mean, it's great that they had cameras, but wow, they didn't use them, which we've seen so many times, right? But, but I remember I remember back in the late 90s and early 2000s where, where a tick, you know, $15,000, $20,000, you know, was not an uncommon number for that. And the thing that was really missing was a lot of instructional support for those. It just wasn't there. Now, now you've got um, people out there who've got their own websites, they've got their own books, and they're doing a lot of, you know, videos and so forth to help you learn about ticks. I mean, you've got people working for the sales for various brands who are going around putting on schools and stuff. There wasn't a lot of that. Like Dirk says, a lot of that back then wasn't, wasn't, wasn't. Yeah, we there. mentioned Andy Stance quite a few times here, Danny. So he's, he's one of the leading experts on that one, really pushing hard and sharing all the information freely, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but in, in, not in their defense here in this case, but I remember our first uh, Thermager cameras, those bullards, they were the size of a motorcycle helmet. So, <laughs> I mean, Carrying that thing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we had yeah one guy assigned, and his job was carry the. I, I know my friend uh, Manfred Keen. He uh, used to be uh, a fire chief in Ontario, and he's full time for uh, Bullard. I think he's a rep, but I mean, he is all over it. You say you need training, they are coming with bells on, right? And he writes articles for the magazines and and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a it's a shame though in this call that they didn't use it because it definitely yeah. would have. Helped and it's them. not necessarily the the salesperson or the, the manufacturer that does not give you the training. Uh, there are departments that just just don't want it. Hey, you bought, you purchased these. We sent an instructor to teach you, and they're like, no, thank you. We got it. Just give me the manual, right? That that's the big EGO we've been mentioning quite a few times when departments just no, we just don't want it. Again, not sure if this was the case here, but obviously they missed the SOP part. <laughs> but, but for the last couple of years now, you can buy um, air packs with the ticks built right into the mask. Now, mind you, yeah, it, it adds a significant cost. And no doubt the mask is down a lot more often than it would be for batteries and God knows what else. Hard to beat having a head up on a on the thermal imaging. Hard they did that. mention here as well. I noticed in the in the report that the door to the apartment where the firefighter was trapped and died had a self closer on it, but it didn't close. It didn't work. So which which added to the flow path partly open, especially once you know. And he was in there in the flow path. So just uh, I noticed that here it wasn't in the and it didn't identify it in the recommendations, but it's definitely one of the things. It also would have made it a lot more difficult for the RIT team to get down that hallway because although the fire was in this CD corner and inside the apartment, it would have been seeking a flow path into the in hallway. the chimney. Always a tough place to go. 
The next recommendation was the multiple operating frequencies for emergency services, allowing portable radios to be equipped with two frequencies for tactical and one for command, which you, you mentioned, uh, Denny, was a problem on this, where they couldn't get on the radio for 70 seconds while the guy was trying to transmit a mayday because the IC was talking with truck one, which wasn't there yet. And back to talk back to talking about radio technology, one of the things that I had mentioned earlier in the 90s where you had this emergency or man down button, that radio stole priority on the system as soon as that button was pushed and shut everybody else off. So you got through regardless. So that's another benefit. Well, that was a problem during the Houston call because the uh, radio wires melted on the microphones and then they it disabled the radio system for everybody because the wires melted. Um, but yeah. Right. right. But they've upgraded the spec yeah, on that yeah, now? Yeah, you can program it. There's so much programming. And, and as, as a side note, uh, a lot of fire departments, most fire departments do not buy NFPA spec mm, radios. Too much money. And a lot of the vendors for those radios, because I know from another, I do uh, consulting on this, I know by talking to some of the radio vendors, a lot of the radio vendors have no clue that mm -hmm. that exists, that standard. And the fire department would have to ask for it to even know it exists. And the, we, we questioned some of the radio vendors and they went, mm, what are you talking about? Yeah. Because of course, they don't sell to fire departments exclusively. In fact, probably not even the majority of their business is that. I, so education is a yeah, strong I ran thing. into that with thermal imaging cameras too. Is Do you want the NFPA version or the non-NFPA version? What's the difference? Thousand, thousand bucks. But, you know, uh, it, if you drop the NFPA one, it's not, it's still going to work. If you immerse the NFPA one, it's still going to work. Uh, if you overheat the NFPA one, it's still going to work, whereas the non-FPA one won't. But, yeah. yeah. Again, SOPs, SOGs, right? If you have different, different... Uh um brands or standards for your equipment then you have to specify what you can use it for right and this department here they only had one radio channel so that that to the uh, problems there um, the department now is operating on the 800 megahertz system with three established channels one for fire one for police and one as a shared channel for simultaneous incidences so that was often in that era uh, actually, my last department in Fort Saskatchewan, the chief of the time who retired soon after I, I started, but he had set up the whole 800 megahertz radio system for the city. And it was similar, like public works had a channel, police had a municipal enforcement had a channel, fire had a channel, uh, which it was advanced for the time. But today, that's definitely not, not where we need to be. We have a lot of channels at our disposal, but... Unfortunately, we don't practice enough using different channels on the fire ground for different sectors, right? Um, we do have a technical rescue channel, for example, that would be great to use. And after so many calls, we said, man, we should have used this, uh, but we didn't, right? Well, we have a simplex channel. Like you can just go kind of like your walkie-talkie. It's not monitored, but for, for a quick communication between team members, it'd be absolutely perfect but then uh people are scared that they miss radio communication somehow even though i think it would improve communications overall it's the same as the cologne incident that you say revolutionized training and mayday training in germany scba self-rescue training again communications well blue card is all communications it is it, what it is it's how to communicate out of fire uh you know so uh yeah but, but there's so there's so, there's so many steps to to making the available technology work right you, you've got to research your needs you've got to research the equipment that's available you've got to purchase the equipment you've got to write SOPs that make sense that work you've got to train on those SOPs then you've got to practice using those things and put yourself in practice situations where the people see the value in that then you've got to evaluate how well that worked which means you need to do PIRs after calls, you need to look at these things. You need to say, we should have done this, we should have done that. You rewrite your SOPs if you have to, or you change your training evolutions, and you change your practices, and you work on your culture. And maybe at the end of the day, nine times out of ten, you'll get it right. There'll always be that one time where you didn't. Like previous, you know, where they said they left the tick on the on the on the engine and it would have been really nice to have it with you. You know, those kinds of things. They can happen. But 
if you don't even take the first steps, uh, it makes it a lot more difficult. To then these things will happen. Not they may happen, they will happen. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. No question. No the question. EU had uh, pulled out a few uh, recommendations or factors from the state report. This would Right now, it's all been pretty well the, the NIOSH report. What were the couple of the things you uh, you found in the state report? Well, the interesting thing is, is the state report had basically one main conclusion, and that was there was a problem with freelancing. That was the main conclusion in the state report. And if you think about it from the perspective of what freelancing means, it means firefighters operating as non-team members, not operating as a team. So that means not operating um, through the incident command system properly. In other words, one person you know, directing the strategy and tactics, um, not working in buddies as pairs, not operating with the, the crew officer's understanding and knowledge. You don't have to be joined at the hip. You just need to know what's going on. And you need to be all of those things. And so there were two main things that got them into trouble here. One was the firefighter uh, appeared to have freelanced by going to the third floor. We don't know why he did. And so that's the thing that started the ball rolling. And then he might have been rescued in time. They don't know this, but you know there was a, another officer, command officer on the scene who, who um, initiated external application of master streams and drove the RIT team or the FAST team out of the building who might or might not have rescued the firefighter in time to save his life. Uh, that, that I don't think any conclusion was told on that. So, those were two indications that the state report quoted, basically. And uh, with with neither one of those things happening, they might have had a different outcome. So that was the number one conclusion on the state report that I saw was that freelancing was a problem at this. Yeah, instance. well, it's not the first time we've... And, and honestly, back in, back in 2001, freelancing was... Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're still getting it even today. But, uh, but no, that's why we're here, right? That's why we have this podcast and that's why we talk about these things. It's a way that when you're working out or walking the dog or driving to work, you can listen to uh, what's happened in the past and hopefully learn from it. So I want to thank both of you for joining us again here today, uh, you know, and thank our, our listeners. The uh, For Denny, your inaugural uh, emergency traffic podcast with us. Hopefully uh, we'll do some more together. Uh, with everybody doing shifts and lives, it's uh, we have a, a repertoire of a few people to share share the roles with, which is great. Thank you for listening to another emergency traffic podcast. We do appreciate your interest and hope that you find them interesting and informative. Give us a like or a thumbs up on your uh, on your favorite podcast application. These help the algorithms to uh, help more people learn about our podcast. We're slowly growing, and you can follow us on our Twitter feed or our Facebook page. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Last word up to you two. Stay safe. Stay safe. Keep your head up. Be aware of your surroundings. All right. Great job. <laughs>